things in character as as this, this rakish gadabout who gets stopped by a cop, a sexy lady cop, who of course takes advantage of the situation. There are lyrics about the the sexy lady cop shoving her nightstick up Anthony Kiedis butt, and that's that's how their careers started. That's when it that's when it peaked initially, was was that album. So anyway, since we're talking about uh, police brutality, this is probably the Big Bang Theory theory. Hi, I'm Nick, and I'm Kyle, and this was purely sexy imaginary police brutality, which is the only kind I support. Um, this is a show where we watch the television series, The Big Bang Theory, uh, and then we critique it, and we do a bunch of obnoxious gatekeepy shit that people either like or don't like. You find out for yourself. Thanks for listening. <laughs> also, did I, did we do the Nick and Kyle thing? My mind is, uh, wiped today. Maybe Yes, just... we, you said you were Nick, I said I was Kyle. I think, so, this is the, the day after my first night of doing CPAP, I, I found out earlier this week that I <laughs> I stopped breathing in my sleep <laughs> with disturbing frequency. <laughs> like, not just, oh, sure, every now and then everyone might, like, no, like, apparently I've just not been getting restful sleep at all for years. And maybe maybe I've adapted, and this is what it's like when I get that little bit of extra Z's as my brain can't calibrate correctly. But we should actually talk about the show, I guess, and not my... Not the the tube that's going to be attached to my face for the rest of my life. Any pre-show summary tidbits you would like to discuss, Kyle, or shall we blast through it? About the show. About the show. Or whatever. You know, free form. How you feeling? Pretty good. I uh, I got my black belt in Krav Maga. Did you see that on Facebook? I saw that. I hadn't congratulated you yet. Congratulations, You hadn't. Kyle. I was waiting, you bastard, and you never said anything. I was like, I can't let it go. I, I didn't mean to call you out live on the recording, but I was like, I want my fucking congratulations. Well, I remember I saw one of the videos of it, and I saw it was you and a couple other pairs of people, and I didn't understand what you were trying to do. It just looked difficult. It looked like you were being held in some sort of grapple and no, made, oh, yeah that guy was on top of me and basically yes. he could have punched me anytime he wanted and so my job i was just hugging him to me so that he couldn't punch me so that was like friendship practice yes okay uh, that was that was that's your optimal move when someone you know your best bet is to get up but if you can't get up if someone's like literally like you know like on top of you, then your best bet is just to is just to wrap their head up and you know and wrap their arm up and then just like yeah, basically you know hyper aggressive hug. You just reminded me. I every now and then sometimes one of the Paul brothers will pop in my my head and I'll be like, what's uh, what's their deal? And you mean like because they do like MMA and boxing and stuff. Yeah, and apparently Logan Paul uh, had a. An exhibition match with Floyd Mayweather, which yeah, sounds it was bad. That sounds insane to me. For that, that would happen. But then the only like interesting thing from the Wikipedia article about it was that he missed a lot of punches and that he very frequently tried to yeah clinch and and, and get close rather than just fight. So yeah. no, Floyd Mayweather will fight anyone apparently if you ha- if if the money's good enough. Like the real question is. Like, why were they right that so many people would pay to watch that fight? But you know, if you can convince Floyd, I mean, if you can convince Floyd, May- Wayme- ah, if 
if you can convince Floyd that there's money to be made and that he's not going to get his butt kicked, he'll basically fight anyone. Good to know. Good to know. All right. Something to aspire to. Well, I guess since we're talking about Logan Paul, there we have nothing else interesting of note before we start, so let's do it. All right. This week's episode is Season 5, Episode 10, a.k.a. The Flaming Spittoon Acquisition, uh, which is fine. It's, it's related to the, the not magic knockoff card game they're playing. Pretty straightforward episode this week, though. Not much of a B-plot, really. I mean, the main plot... The, the gist of the, the, the plot today is Amy... And, and Sheldon finally established to some extent what their relationship is. And it starts with the cold open at the comic book shop. Amy is hanging out with all the, the bro nerds. And Stuart uh, finds himself taking interest in Amy. And he openly says it uh, just because she is nice to him. Which I think is a very common nerd thing. Uh, and so... Stewart then does the the bizarre thing of asking Leonard to ask Sheldon for his permission to ask Amy out on a date. And uh, over the course of several otherwise pretty uninteresting scenes, that happens. Amy and Stewart do go on a date to a movie, but Sheldon, while never admitting so, uh, does become clearly obsessed with what's happening. He starts cyber-stalking Stuart, at least on the Facebook, to try to get updates about how the date is going. And then he eventually does bust in on the date itself between uh, Stuart and Amy at a movie theater. He just sits right next to them. And uh, in that moment, Amy and Sheldon decide that, hey, we are boyfriend and girlfriend. Uh, But... Amy finishes the date with Stuart because she's polite, I guess. And uh, they they give each other a positive review before Stuart fucks off to, I don't know, drink himself to death or whatever other things he needs to deal with the, the horrible, horrible day he's had. Um, and that is most of the episode. It's It also ends with uh, Sheldon, when they get into their relationship, he says that Nothing about the relationship is actually going to change. And so there's no, like, celebratory makeout or anything that you would normally accept, expect for people getting together on a sitcom. Instead, Amy is in exactly the same position, except now she's expected to sign a contract about what her uh, minimum duties are. And uh, if there is a B-plot in this episode, uh, it's that Magic the Gathering is stupid. That's that's it. <laughs> yeah, so I want to start there. Okay. Not because I know you have some insight. It's not that inter- but basically they predict two parts of of nerd's obsession with Magic the Gathering. One of part felt very realistic to me and one part felt totally I'm they they don't understand this at all. So the part that felt totally realistic is the part where a new expansion comes out and they're all like they start out like, "Uh, oh, this is dumb." This is just a blatant cash grab. These cards are stupid. They're definitely not good as the old cards, which were also getting kind of dumb anyway. But this game hasn't been good for a long time. They just want our money. We're all going to buy this expansion pack, right? And then not only do they buy the expansion packs, but by the end, they've bought like the special gold foil collector's edition expansion packs. That part all felt totally like my understanding of people who play Magic the Gathering. That lines up with my experience. 
yeah, the part that felt weird is the way they are, they sell themselves on the new expansion pack is that it has a cool story, which no, yeah, that, no that is absurd. <laughs> that well, and that's something that actually used to bug me, and I'm okay with now. Is that for for any non nerd or someone not familiar with magic, however you found yourself in the unfortunate position of entering our realm, yeah, there there is a big story to magic the gathering and any of those other card games i guess but i i know i've never known about it but i was surprised when because I, I never really played magic and then i started working at the comic book shop and i was constantly exposed to it and i don't think a single nerd not one had gave half a shit about any of the lore of the game like yeah that was 100 percent filler they they would be excited about specific cards and they would know all of the card names but you know they'd only know what their their stats and other attributes were. They they didn't give a shit about like the war of the planeswalkers or whatever. Yeah, exactly. It's like I know technically there is some underlying, like at least some some very loose lore because I know that like it's Wizards of the Coast and they do Dungeons and Dragons crossovers every now and then where they try to convince you to play Dungeons and Dragons in the same setting as Magic: The Gathering. But it's like nobody, like I said, nobody actually cares. It's not like anybody like who plays Magic the Gathering does it so that they can LARP as like one of the wizards in Magic the Gathering. Right. But you know, one of my favorite moments was Raj questioning the lore because whatever card game they're playing apparently has it's a combination of fantasy and old American West uh, gaming, which. I say, and then I realize the joke I like actually isn't even related to that, even though that's what the game's about. But but Raj has this one card called the Elephant, and he's like, "What situation could an elephant be in where his soul was damned to hell? Like, why, why is that what happened to this creature? Like, this is what really is, you know, beyond my suspension disbelief." And I thought that was cute. Uh, And that was the only, I think, adorable nerd moment of the episode for me. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's such a the new uh, the new cards are all themed that they're set in a like you said in a fantasy western. I believe that they don't say that, but they treat it like they've totally invented this thing. But I think you know that's a real genre. I think it's called like weird west or whatever. But yeah, like magic plus western. There are all sorts of RPGs and things and literary. There's it has its whole own set of literary tropes. But it only exists in the course of this episode, so that there can be a scene which goes on. It's probably only like thirty seconds of the actual show. But it is way too long of just, just sitting just around just naming cards. different cards, which obviously I could just see the writers in the room being like, oh, Annie Ogrely. Ah, that's a good one. Put that on the board. Snort yourself another bunch of cocaine, mister. You've earned it with that one. You know, it was weird with that one in particular, though, is Raj said it with his Indian accent. And it sounded almost the same as just Annie Oakley. It did. <laughs> and I was like, what? That's what? That one's not a joke. I don't understand. And then it took a second, like, oh, oh, girly. Yeah. Also, at one point, there's a Pocahontas joke card. Yeah. And, and that annoyed me, too, because Pocahontas has no... She's an... Her only association that could possibly be with the Wild West is that she's Native American. But she's Native American from a time and place that is as distinct from the Native Americans who were in the West, as she notoriously lived on the East Coast, where the Pilgrims were. That's kind of her whole deal. 
yeah, she'd be her card would be all about thin crust pizza being supreme and those kinds of things. She wouldn't know anything about what it was like in old west times. Yeah, um, she wouldn't. She's not. She's not into In and Out Burger. She's not that kind of Native American. Yeah, it's you mentioned In and Out Burger, and I, I feel warm, but I, I like that place. You know, the line shouldn't ever be as long as it is. But thank uh, you, thank it is, you. It is good though. It is real good. It's like it would be the best burger in America if you could just get it like within five minutes of queuing up for it. Part of the experience, though, as much as I hate it, is the line. Because, like, every time I do it, I'm like, why am I doing this for fast food? And it's the only place where it happens. Because no one else is like, oh, I gotta get I gotta get some Wendy's. The, the new chicken sando just dropped. I've got 45 minutes of my life that I want to give to that. But we'll gladly do it for uh, In-N-Out, even though the, the food experience is not substantially better. <laughs> Yeah, as long as we're, I started to say, we can't make this entire episode just us talking about California things, but it makes for a good transition because there's also a scene in this episode where Sheldon confronts Amy, not really confronts makes it sound like he's confrontational, but he, he breaks in to Leonard and, or not Leonard, what's the guy's name who runs the comic book store? Stuart. Stuart. Stuart and Amy's, uh date and they're watching a movie we never find out anything about the movie but he he comes into the movie theater and crosses and sits next to them and starts a conversation in the movie theater which is a very classic trope like a bunch of people talking in a movie theater while the movie's playing sure but as someone who lives in los angeles the same you know the same let me tell you if there is one place in america where they do not like you where they take it way too seriously the whole don't talk in a movie thing it is fucking here it is like in real life, the second Sheldon was like, I need to talk to you, some douchebag behind him would be like, I paid $34.99 for this ticket. Y'all are a bunch of assholes. Can I get the please the concierge to come kick these fuckers out? Yeah, this is true. I mean, like, and I support that, to be honest, but it was unrealistic. That is. I also remember uh, going with some friends to see Thor The Dark World, the least memorable movie of any cinematic universe. <laughs> Except that they had these cool, like, dark energy grenades or something. Those were cool. But uh, I remember my friends and I got shushed before the movie started. We got we all got high in the car before we came in. I got shushed during a Coca-Cola commercial. And that's where I was like, this is unreasonable shushing. I am yeah. pushing back. And this lady is like, I didn't come here to listen to you and your friends talk. And I'm like, you're going to have a bad time for the next two hours then, lady. <laughs> and, you know, I was perfectly polite during the actual movie. But, like, to get shushed when someone is just trying to sell you something with a polar bear. No way, man. Well, no honest, way. I, I hate, like, I do understand, like, a bit of their frustration. But I've always sort of hated it because... To a, I mean, I know there's like a give and take on this. There's like a social contract. But if you think of a lot of popular theater in history, like, do you think people who were watching Shakespeare were watching Hamlet and rap silence? No, right. it was a bunch of yokels, you know, from around. They were swearing at the actors the whole fucking time. That was part oh. of the joy. That's what makes it a communal experience. If you don't want to watch the movie with other people, you can watch it at home. Yes. And so, so one of my favorite memories, and I know you were there for this, was when we went to see Cats, and the people who, who knew the cat. 
They what? They lasted maybe twenty minutes. <laughs> yeah, the people who knew that cats that this movie was fundamentally a joke just yeah. hijacked the whole and theater. And before the, anyone the wants to think people... Kyle or me, or these other people are rude. This was a, at least a couple weeks after Cats came out. Everyone knew. Yeah, everyone like, knew what it was up. by this point. <laughs> Two people apparently had not gotten the memo and came to watch. Cats in Deadly Serious Ernest. And yeah, they lasted. They did not make it through the first song before they had stood up and started giving us the finger as they left the auditorium. That ruled. Uh, You also reminded me, I'm a very cheapish, non-confrontational person, and I feel like I've used up my one good movie confrontation, and it was a bummer because I went and saw um, X3... The, the X Men United. Yeah, I saw that for a midnight opening, <laughs> and that was one of the, that was one of the first like superhero movies where I walked out and I was like, "Did I enjoy that?" I mean, I I stayed up to midnight to watch that in, in an entirely full theater, but did I enjoy that? But um, there was someone behind me talking a lot, a lot during the trailers, and I was like, "Okay, you know what." That's unacceptable movie behavior, but it's trailer time. We got to see if it keeps up. And then it did persist through the movie, and I was like, this sucks. This, And I think it was like 10 or 15 minutes in, I turned around, and I very politely said, excuse me, but could you please shut the fuck up? And he did. And I was like, look at me. I'm an adult. I have agency. I, I confronted somebody. Uh, and then after the movie, he... I was waiting out front for my friend to get the car and come around and pick me up. And this guy found me and he, he confronted me and he's like, hey, hey, you want to you wanna say something now? huh?" And I'm like, I don't know who you are because I didn't see him. <laughs> and he's like, he, you, you hushed me in the movie. Remember that? You told me to shut the fuck up. I'm like, oh, yeah. Well, you were loud. And he's like, my crippled ass will beat you here right now. And I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> and I did not notice that he had a cane and was walking with a limp. And I was like, am I about to... Stand here idly as a person with a disability beats the shit out of me because I can't beat him up. That's not a good look. And I he's confronting me out for my own behavior. I uh, I have set my own trap, hoisted by my own petard here. <laughs> and instead, that my friend came up with a car and then I left. So... I'm going to cut all of that. I was less eventful than I recall. <laughs> no, that's great. <laughs> we should go to... The, I will... I am never afraid to beat up a person with a disability, you know, on your behalf. I consider that, you know, giving them... One second here. Hold on. Don't say anything else. We've been recording for about 22 minutes now. And since it's going to be at about 21.50, we can isolate your comfort with harming a person with disabilities. Okay. Continue. (laughs) Just for equal treat. I mean, if if they're starting the fight, it would be rude. It, it's a form of discrimination to not beat the shit out of them. If you would beat the shit out of a person who didn't have a cane in that same situation. I mean, you're exactly right. The appropriate thing that I should have done was was popped him in the fucking face and been like, "Look, I didn't even like this movie, and it took all my bravery to confront you, and this is what I get for it. Like, I have to keep dealing with it. Yeah. Like, I had to watch a Brett Ratner directed movie and deal with this shit." Uh, we're having a lot of fun, but I guess we might want to talk about, um... Eh, all right. It, so is it just, like, the character of Stuart has been one of the more interesting characters to me, because I keep trying to figure out, is it just that he's undergoing, uh, a process known on TV tropes as, like, flanderization, where he just becomes more and more, like, a cartoonish archetype? 
over time? Or are we supposed to intuit that something very bad has happened at the start of the show and now? Because at the start of the show, he had, like, enough confidence. He was asked, he asked Penny out on a date and was charming and generally, like, confident. Yeah. Like, he fucked that up. But The, main the, the other nerds kind of looked up to him, yeah. Right. He, the main reason he fucked that up was just because he couldn't put up, pick up on all of the social cues about, like, when she wanted, when, you know, she might have slept with him or not. But that's, like, a different thing. In this episode, we have a moment, we have, like you said, we have the start of the moment where he tells uh, Leonard, well, I don't know, Amy looked at me and her eyes weren't filled with hatred and contempt, so I figured that's the best I'm going to do, which is fucked up. And then we have the other line when he's in the movie theater, where, um, and I hate this because it's it's like a real thing that I know that some uh, sad boys do, sad nerd boys do, because he's like, I'm sorry, you're you're having a horrible time. And she's like, no, this is fine. And he's like, no, it's okay. You don't have to pretend. And it's like, don't do that. So it's not like I don't know that that's real behavior that some nerds do where they like preemptively ruin everything and bring themselves down as a way of controlling like the outcomes of things. But I don't want to get into the psychology of all that. I'm just trying to ask, is it the case that he's just sort of shifted archetypes over time to become more and more like a the audience's expectation of like what a comic book store owner should be or is, or like, are we presuming that in his background, he had like a, a mental breakdown? I think that if I'm, I'm trying to imagine Stuart's perspective and I'm informing this with my own experience as a former comic book guy, that if I were to see three or four hyper dweebs who you know, I might consider friendly acquaintances come in every week for new comic book day and that all of a sudden one of them is coming around with this hot blonde lady that's at least willing to entertain his needs and that a little bit later, oh, he's, he's dating this this uh, this other hot Indian woman who, who's doing the same. Meanwhile... I have to keep selling them all these cards and, and I'm not I'm not dating these hot people. I, I think he might be crushed to see that the people like him are somehow succeeding in spite of of their, their similar position. But also so Stuart's not a doctor. Yeah. So you think it's the expectations that are slowly breaking him or the comparison? I, I think so. I think like there was a time where he was like, I'm a comic book guy, that's fine. I'm king of my little kingdom, this is fun, cool. And then he sees uh, lives around him start to develop and evolve in a way that his own is not. And the, yeah, that like it just wears him down, just wears him down. I buy that. I, buy, I also, they specifically mentioned in this episode that he's he's been recommended Zoloft in the past. So I was just wondering if this is like, you know, a classic. Maybe, maybe Basically, I guess all I'm saying is there's not enough textual evidence to support this, but I'm a little worried about Stuart. Oh, absolutely. He needs. So I'm not just worried about his his glumness, but I think the most startling thing is that he can, after Sheldon and Amy, mid-Amy Stewart date, confirm that they are officially in a relationship, Stewart still kind of has some hope about the rest of the date. <laughs> like, he <laughs> he doesn't walk away. He he doesn't say, oh, well, at least we can be friends. There's somewhere where, like, at the end when he's he's breaking up with it, well, well, Amy's breaking up with him, and he's kind of like, but it went well, right? <laughs> he's like, there's still some hope that he's going to get in there. 
And um, that can't exist anymore. That's at the end of at the end of the episode. I don't know what he has left. <laughs> like, there, he may have a very fulfilling life uh, outside of the comic book shop that we are not privy to. But I doubt it. <laughs> and he's yeah, no. I think I, I think it's been implied he lives there now. Like, that ha- it's, it's come up. He's had to stay or... there before. Yeah, and I think he's also joked about struggling to afford food. So he's doing good. <laughs> oh, man. oh man! Anywho, I don't know. I don't know what else. It's that, that you know. It's Sheldon asks Penny out. I guess you know in a in a very cheap ploy to try to make Amy jealous. It it goes nowhere. That's that's fine. That's cute. My own, well, no. The best part about that scene is is. Penny is, is trying to give him advice, and she says, you know, I once had a crush on someone, and I couldn't bring myself to tell them, and uh, and uh, eventually they moved on, and it was heartbreaking for me. Do you get what I'm trying to tell you? And Sheldon goes, yes, I'm the person. That was good. She, and she goes, what? No, and he's like, but it makes so much sense. I get it now. You've been dating Leonard all this time because you're just desperate for a reason to be near me. And, and, I, was, I, and I was like, yes. As as weird a twist as that would be, that would be such a good twist. That would be great if it were a long con to, to worm his way into Sheldon's her way like, into Sheldon's heart. I would watch that show about the crazy, like sort of like a version of Crazy Ex Girlfriend. Only it's like ridiculously hot, you know, out of the league lady for some reason convinced that she can't just ask the nerdy aloof guy out, and so she's fucking his best friend instead. That would be that would be such a good premise for a show. Now I worry that I've um, unwittingly been part of that situation, (laughs) that I've somehow, like, missed out. Like, oh, man, my my friend and his girlfriend don't seem to get along at all, but she likes spending time with me. I don't know what that's about. I'm too busy playing (laughs) Sega Genesis Shadowrun for the fourth time. Yeah, I could see that with you. Yeah. Um, also, t- t- just another side thing that made me happy. Uh, jumping back to the, the the movie theater before we totally leave it. When Stuart, so Stuart doesn't stay for the rest of the date. He lets, I mean, not Stuart Sheldon. He he lets Stuart and Amy have have the rest of the date. And on the way out of the theater, he gives Stuart a dollar, so he has like you know like for a treat for later or something like that. Sour Patch Kids. Sour Patch Kids and. Uh, I think that's the closest Sheldon can get to, like, teabagging anyone. Like, as condescending as he constantly is, that was the one move where I was like, fuck, Sheldon. Like, that's, yeah, that's you. Cold. That was merciless. No, similarly, there's a moment where Amy is like, like, Sheldon admits, I mean, with, we'll set this aside. It's a little fucked up that the only reason Sheldon can bring himself to, uh, ask Amy to be his girlfriend just because he narcissistically fears the lack of exclusivity. But we'll put that toxicity aside because that's, <laughs> that's such a major part of heteronormative culture that there's basically no way to like dissect that without calling a bunch of otherwise healthy relationships out. So it's fine. <laughs> um, sometimes you ask people to be with you just because the thought of them being with anybody but you fills you with... A sense of dread, not because you're actually ready for a sip. And that's totally a perfectly fine way to build That's why I dated my mom for most of my teens. (laughs) Um, But anyway, where the fuck was I going? Oh, (laughs) Stone Cold moves. So he's sitting in the movie theater and he's like, I would not be opposed if you were maybe to not not be my 
girlfriend anymore right. or whatever. And she looks at him and she says, just like Stone Cold, could you try that without all the, the quadruple without negative, a, could you offer Quadruple negative, yeah. And he's like, ah, you're impossible. And she does this move, some of the best physical comedy I've seen in the show, where she just slides her body (laughs) from one side of the chair to the other side of the chair so that she is now touching shoulders with Stuart. And she's like, hey, Stuart. And it's just like, it's like, it's fucked up. It's particularly fucked up if you're Stuart. But it is, like you said, it was one of the most like ruthlessly cold things I've ever seen someone do. And I was like, get it. Yeah. It's emotionally manipulative, but... You know what you want, you know how to get it, and that part's sexy. You know, this is something that, were it a different show, you would learn in the next season that Sheldon and Amy planned this entire thing. <laughs> like, not because they wanted to destroy Stuart, but because they knew that destroying Stuart would turn them on. Like, that's, he is just an object in their game, in that they, they knew that this is what they needed to take their relationship to the next level. It's that like, it's like cruel intentions or dangerous liaisons. Right, it's right. It's like part of, their, part of their relationship is just ruining other people's relationships or sense of values. I'm sticking with that theory. I'm going to see how often they do this. How many, how many people try to squeeze in and, and get in on Amy only to have their, their livelihoods tor- taken from them, which didn't happen to... Stuart here, you know, assuming he doesn't kill himself, but ah, it's a big assumption. It is, is I, I think we already basically discussed this, but it is weird that they basically recycled this plot, only now it's Sheldon and Amy instead of Leonard and Penny, right? Yeah, I wonder how many times Stuart is going <laughs> to be used to prove that two other people are good for each other. <laughs> what if that's his role in life? <laughs> Like he's just there to just be the filler, so other people can be like, "I've made a mistake." <laughs> kinda... That was a. That was also a. I don't. I never watched it. Like it was a. I assume it was a terrible movie. But there was like some either Netflix or Lifetime movie, or maybe it was in theaters about like a guy who discovers that his his magical superpower is basically like every woman who dates him falls in love with the next person they date after him. And is that so good once... luck, Chuck? Maybe? Does I, that, I feel like that has magic and fucking, and that's the only reason I can think of it. But yeah, I have no idea. But I mean, it is would be an interesting super, an interesting pickup line. It's like, hey, baby, want to meet Mister Right? Got to go through me first. I'm like, I'm like the, I'm like the boss before the final boss. I'm not the one you get the satisfaction out of beating, but you still have to go through me. Yeah, and you know what? If you do it quickly enough or do enough damage, you might even get an extra item that'll be useful in the next fight. So, come on. Come on. <sighs> Anything else about the episode? I feel you know, like... I, I think we've thoroughly uh, exhausted this yeah, one. Yeah, maybe. But, but I, feel, I feel good about it. I feel like we, yeah. we ate just enough here. And so, yeah, let us transition into our, our nerdy things. And I have one ready, uh, but Kyle, would you like to go first or shall I? No, go ahead. Okay. So I'm going to start with a quick re-recommend. I've previously recommended the Adult Swim television show, uh, Dream Corp LLC. I'm just re-recommending because third season is now available on Hulu. And I guess other people must also like it because the network gave them money and it's very upsetting. (laughs) So I'll leave that alone. But... For my actual recommendation, uh, I have been playing a lot of the PS4 version of Odin Sphere. And I'm going to keep it really short, but 
with Odin Sphere, it's a it's a side-scrolling action game that has some RPG elements. And in playing this version, I was like, this isn't at all how I remember. Because this game originally came out on the PS2. And it was notable at the time for having really beautiful uh, sprite work. Like, everything looked hand-drawn and incredible. Uh, it was also known for running like dog shit like they overextended themselves and so it was it just did not run well on the ps2 and like incredible slowdown and so i thought this version was just going to fix that stuff turns out that uh the the original game also it was i guess you could say a little bit plotting and that's because the th- the combat was i i would say graciously is thoughtful you're not just smashing everything to bits you're like trying to farm resources at the same time there's like a lot of attention that was paid to planting different fruits and then using the points you get during battle to grow the fruit so you can like heal yourself mid-battle and so you're constantly trying to figure out the best way to harness resources and then when they remade this game they're like what if it was just about kicking everyone's ass all the time uh and they changed the game enough that I think it is fundamentally a different game. <laughs> it is now like a side-scrolling brawler fighting game hybrid where everyone has their own like long, uh, unique move list. <laughs> and so the gameplay is completely different, uh, but I think it's all for the better. And the, the other thing about this game, though, is that if, if you miss the old style of gameplay, uh, the entire original game is included. And so you get to play both the original and the remixed version. And so it's great. Also, already mentioned the beautiful sprite work. Uh, but the, the story is fun. It's a bunch of uh, mythological figures out of place. The Thor's around doing stuff. But the, he's just called Thor for... No, not Thor. Odin. Uh, but he doesn't really seem to have a real connection to actual Norse mythology it's just like everything is just kind of Norse flavored I guess <laughs> there's some sort of subtitle it's like Odin Sphere left or something I I tried to look up how to pronounce it before the podcast and then I saw it was a portmanteau of two different Norse words and I just let it go so uh but anyway it's a great game uh I I recommend it Odin Sphere available on things Kyle your turn <laughs> all right so appropriately um mine for the subject matter, this is sort of a, re- a recommendation, but or a re-recommendation, but sort of not. So, I over the last week watched the rebuild, all four parts, the rebuild of Evangelion. Um, so, what it just? Uh, I think I've recommended Neon Genesis Evangelion before. For those of you who don't know, it was this uh, genre redefining epochal work of mid-90s anime that completely changed the game in a lot of ways, created by this incredibly brilliant um, auteur animation director named Hideaki Anno during the midst of one of the worst depressive episodes of his life. So he created this show that's ostensibly about a child who is tasked with piloting a giant robot monster, sort of a robot, sort of a monster, to fight off other giant monsters who want to destroy the Earth. But tacked on that, on top of that, are about 17 layers of, like, psychology and biblical imagery and metatextual whatever 
so that by the end, the whole thing becomes this uh, sort of beautiful but definitely different uh, experience of basically just watching the main character have either a mental breakdown or, you know, a mental epiphany. Um, but it has no satisfaction. I shouldn't say it, this is it. Just your mileage may vary on whether it was a satisfying resolution to the show. So they made a movie, you know, the next year that was supposed to be a more definitive ending and was even more fucked up, disturbing, depressing for many, many people is one of like the most fucked up and traumatic things that has ever happened to them is watching that movie, which was called End of Evangelion. Um, so I went back and I, and so then... Uh, he finished all of that and he went on to direct some other stuff. He also went on to, you know, feel better about his life in general, I guess. And so, like, almost 20 years later, uh, he came back... No, I guess about 15, 10, whatever. Sometime <laughs> later, he came back and he was like, you know, I think I could do a better job of this now. People like Evangelion. It's, like, the work that's most popular that I've ever done. I sort of have, like, a new take on it. So he decided he was going to make a, a cinematic version, still animated, of the Evangelion story. And so he, okay. he announced that he was creating a new four-part saga, uh, which is interesting by itself. Why not a trilogy? But he's doing a tetralogy of Evangelion films that were going to retell the story. And this is where it gets really wild, because I'm not going to spoil any, but the first movie is almost like a scene-for-scene -scene retelling of, like, the first maybe half to quarter of the anime. The second movie is a lit start, feels a little different right off the bat because they introduce a new character and, you know, they shuffle some stuff around. But it still feels mostly like it's the same. It's the same as the TV show with just some interesting little tweaks along the way and a new character taking up some parts of the plot. And then the third movie does something complete. It's just a completely different thing. It's like it it do it doesn't abandon the story, but it's like it's taking the story in a completely different direction from the story that you were used to in the TV show, and forces forced a lot of people to like radically. Let's just put that it was controversial because people felt like they'd been promised like what was essentially just going to be like you know a more refined retelling. And then if in the third movie, it just becomes fundamentally a different story. Leading into the fourth movie, um, which was only released earlier this year, which finally wraps up the plot. So it's really hard to talk about any of this um, without getting into details that I don't want to get into. I will only say two things. I would recommend you watch all of it, and I would recommend that you watch it in the order that it was originally created. So you have to watch all of Evangelion to appreciate what that's about and why people like it. You have to watch the end of Evangelion to understand why people were so traumatized by how the saga originally wrapped up. And then you watch, and that's all on Netflix, so you can do that pretty easily. And then watch um, Rebuild of Evangelion because I think it, ha it does two things. Uh, well, more than that. But it does two really interesting things. The first off is that it becomes one of the best examples of, like, a meta text that I've ever seen, in the sense that, like, at a certain point, the show becomes, like, a discussion it's having with itself and with its audience that includes assumptions that you 
about your expectations from having watched the old show. So that's why you have to watch the old show because the whole reason it gets weird in part three and the whole reason that weirdness is fundamentally interesting, like basically is because part three becomes a commentary on like the expectations of what do we, what do you guys even want? What do you want? <laughs> why did we do this? What, what were you expecting? How did you think this was going to go? And so it becomes like, it basically becomes the director being like, no, I'm not just going to like redo the whole show for you, but only change one thing. That would be dumb. I'm, that's not how life works. You don't get to go back and redo things. That's actually the title of the third part, interestingly, is you can't redo. Um, and so and so it's like, yeah, we're, we're doing something else because we have to move on. Because we did that, and yeah, it was bad, but it's it's what we did, and now we're moving on. Just deal with it. Nice. And so that's that's interesting in and of itself. And then the fourth part, uh, in addition to having some of the most badass like moments in like the entire of the project of Evangelion, it has like some really great like uh, cinematic moments and artistic moments and moments of action and moments of pathos, and. I think it gives the whole series a happy ending, which it has never had before. So it actually gives a meaningful happy ending uh, that isn't that is unambiguous. Like uh, there were arguably the other endings of Evangelion were ambiguous, but this is the first time that the ending feels both uh, happy and unambiguous at the same time. And so that's awesome. And it feels really well-earned, but I would argue it's only well-earned in the context of, like, understanding the entire thing. If you watch just the four movies by themselves, I'm not sure any of it makes any goddamn sense. I think it <laughs> does make a certain amount of sense if you've watched the whole thing. But even then, what you are watching is less of a plot in, like, the traditional sense, as you are watching a man, like, have a conversation with it himself about what it means to, like grow up and take responsibility for your past work and move on and take responsibility for new work, move, go to therapy and maybe get a girlfriend and, you know, stop defining everything in terms of your misanthrop, your misanthropy and your, you know, your solipsism. It's really great. I really loved it. It really spoke to me, but it was, it was a whole journey that I had to go on. So that's my recommendation. Sorry, I, it took me so long to get through it. So That's Evangelion, right. Evangelion, the original series, you can watch it on Netflix. Um, you can watch the movie that came out, the end of Evangelion. It's also on Netflix. And then the rebuilds are all on Amazon Plus right now, or Amazon Prime, well, all four of them. That sounds intimidating to get through all of that, but I should finally finish watching at least the original series so I can maintain a, a shred of nerd cred, and then I'll get on top of it. Also, I think your advice at the end there that the movie was trying to share was uh, should be directed right back towards Stuart of this episode so we can have our own recursive navel-gazing thing going on that we're doing. Uh, or I need to start working at the comic book shop again so I can live parallel to Stuart and grow increasingly horrified as I watch a television show that accurately predicts. I mean, I think there's, I watched this whole, I don't want to get into this right now, but I watched this, it was a really good essay about, a video essay about Twin Peaks, and it argued that the weird thing about, like, the thing that Twin Peaks The Return is mostly about is how you can't ever have, like, a season three of Twin Peaks, it's impossible, because 20 years past them two, and Twin Peaks season three, and so your expectations are just fundamentally dated, and, and 
out of touch and so and and just bad for you like it's a sign of arrested development that you would even want to show that is just giving you more of like the comfortable homey feeling you got watching the show back when you were you know 20 years younger than you are now mm-hmm. uh I don't know if that's a fair analysis or not, but I thought it was an interesting point. And I do feel like one of the things that we're seeing in pop culture is just like a lot of people just drowning in that. Like basically every, every ugly, not every ugly phenomenon in the world, but every ugly nerd phenomenon seems to come from a place of, why can't you just give me the exact thing that I wanted when I was 10 again? Why is that so much to ask? That's upsetting. I hate it. That even happened, like, I didn't have any dog in this fight, but did you hear about how mad people were about the new Masters of the Universe TV show? Oh, really? Yes. I just can't imagine caring about that in the first place, but... Oh, they did. They cared, and they were just fundamentally upset, despite having no coherent articulation about what they actually wanted. And it's not even that... It's, like, it's it's fine. It's just fine. Hmm. The worst thing you could say about it is that it's trying to tell, like, a coherent, unified narrative outside of the episodic structure that the original show had, yeah. which only made sense in, because it was, like, a, essentially 20-minute 20 co- 20 toy commercials for 8-year-olds. So, is that what you want, adult man? You want a, you know, high-fidelity, uh, you know, ex- expertly produced 20-minute toy commercials for 8-year-olds? Is that how you define you know, artistic progress. It's just weird.